The human animal isn't doing well in the modern world. We have become domesticated and have lost our wildness. The Human Animal Show explores a return to a state of wild health, our original, authentic human animal. And now your hosts, Frank Forensich and Dr. Rodney King. There he is. Hi, John. Hello, hey, Frank. John. Hey. So, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. So are you happy to kind of jump into this kind of conversation? I'll set the, yeah. I'll set the stage for you. Let me set the stage. So what Please. am you know what am myself and Frank trying to do? So we've called this podcast the Human Animal Project, and uh, I think after the last say several interviews, I feel like we've kind of come to a point where we can describe what this really is about. So it goes something like this, right? So the the predicament we face is less about individuals failing to adapt and more about a system that mandates adjustment to an inherently unhealthy and unsustainable way of life. Yep. We, we, okay. caught it, we caught in a vicious cycle, constantly nudged to fit into a mold that it is that it's itself is damaging and deeply flawed. Yep. So my question of that is, from your perspective, how has the societal system contributed to the meaning crisis that we are experiencing today? The societal system has done that, uh, first of all, in the way in which a society is a machine for enculturating people by getting them to adopt cultural principles and proposals. Um, and and then that's one. And so I'll talk about that first, but just mm -hmm. to foreground where I'm going. And then it's done that within a within a particularly increasingly self-exploitative framework that Han talks about. Uh, so to talk to the first, I think what we have is we have a truncation and commodification of many of the developments of human excellence, like rationality has been truncated and reduced in ways I've talked about. Knowledge has definitely been truncated and reduced to propositional tyranny. Uh, the sacred has been, uh, the experience of the sacred has been truncated and reduced uh, in ways I've been, I've talked about all of these at length, so I'm just pointing to them. Sure, uh, yeah. And, and then we've, we've, we've also, we've lost the, the, the awareness the, and the importance and even the spiritual significance of the collective intelligence of distributed cognition. And instead, we've basically absented that arena, the arena that used to be the commons, and let corporations be the only instruments of the collective intelligence of distributed cognition, which has been a disastrous exemplar for us, because by psychological measures, most corporations are psychopathic in their orientation and nature. Um, um, and then all of that, all of that reshaping and truncation and reduction, and you can do the same thing you and I've talked about you know, it swings back and forth, but there's similar things in the martial arts and mindfulness. We have the mindfulness problem. I, so you can get, there's that. And then the overlap, as I just said, with the corporations is this has largely been done. I think Han is right uh, to turn us into what he calls a self-exploitative or burnout society. We are given these that you have to sort of drive yourself endlessly uh, in order to service these structures. And you're actually not promised anything 
in return to them in return other than perhaps money which you are then promised is the same thing as happiness which you are then promised is the same thing as meaning and all of those things are largely false so what the, the, it's not like big brother where the, the this is han's argument where the the, the powers that be um and I, i'm talking here about economic and political corporations because i think that's what most political parties are now they're just corporations they've ceased to be you know uh, uh you know aspirational groups um and so i think you know what all of that is is doing like i said is it's designed to get us to exploit ourselves to burn ourselves out for a machine that is largely teaching us that we should all of that stuff i said at the beginning is largely teaching you the following you are only of instrumental value mm. you're only of instrumental value because of all these truncations the only thing that matters is your productivity which is just think about that right that is such an instrumentalization of human beings and then you're given that and then of course what that does is because it's not really the value that human beings have you know and this is han's point we burn ourselves out trying to be as productive as we can because that is the only little thin straw through which we get any approval or feedback from these kinds of exploitative structures and i think that just so the truncation leads to the severing leads to the alienation uh leads to people you know being diminished within themselves and then the exploitation means that they're burning themselves out in the face of this and i think those two really drive the meaning crisis. Yeah. Frank? Yes, and I, I agree completely. What I'm interested to hear about is story and what kind of stories yeah. are driving modern culture, modern society, and the, the absence of story. Because now it seems like people are up against this crisis and they there's only really two stories that are circulating out there and both of them are untenable so we have the paleo story it's like we're going to go back to be hunter gatherers that's untenable and then we have the star trek story where we're going to electrify everything everything's going to be perfect and that's really kind of a hope opera so <laughs> what, like do we have, what, what do we have in terms of story now that can unify us so first of all, I think, uh, Frank, that's a great point. Um, I don't know if either one of you caught it, but I had an extended voice with Raveki with Sean Coyne about just this point about the narrative famine we're in. Um, and, and he uh, he had, I think, um, I would call him properly a philosopher of narrative. He has a very well worked out account of narrative. And he's a, and this is not sort of some you know abstract intellectual project. He's a publisher, he's a book publisher. And so, um, um, this is something uh, that he's trying to he's trying to use this knowledge to transform publishing and writing and thereby make an impact on the culture and so I agree with you that um, uh, narrative is important narrative is how we become temporally uh, uh, temporally extended cognitive and moral agents that's what narrative does and it's, and I agree with you that we have we have these utopic or these nostalgic. And this, again, put on my tombstone, neither utopia nor right uh, nostalgia, because right, because what they are both doing is they are actually contributing to that impoverishment I've talked about, because they both tell you that you are in a position, right, not 
not not of hunger that there are real needs not being met but of inadequacy because you know we should get back to where this is a romantic notion right? we should get back to the paleo and what we were like i don't want to live then and, and uh, you know i think there's stuff to be learned from that um mm. and then there's uh you know star trek which represents utopia i've done a very interesting two-part series with uh, Day, uh damon walter on uh, star trek and it should be properly understood as myth rather than as a proposal for the future that fashion life travel is most probably not possible and so is it's we have to understand it mythically and I, I agree with you frank i think when people take it as you know that's what we're working towards i think that's just that's to misunderstand uh the function of myth i think the question would then be and, and i'm interested to hear what both of you think hmm. um what kind of stories should we be doing right now i mean we used to have uh uh and i guess you're alluding to this frank we used to have a much wider repertoire of stories that were so for example we used to have these two other big stories uh we used to have the abrahamic story uh which is the story right that you know where you travel you're 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 going to a new home and of course that has a value but it's been largely swallowed up by the utopia right and then we used to have the odyssean trope about trying to get back home where you belong where the beatles get back right and that has largely been subsumed and consumed by the nostalgia monster so the two monsters have eaten these stories into themselves and they've left us with the fact no no human beings are always doing this thing where they have somewhere where they're homed they have to go out from the home and but they have to also be able to return to the home right and and so when we lost those when they were cannibalized or consumed we lost one of those you know and of course this what i'm saying is not new at all you know this is joseph campbell this is you know jordan peterson right what i would add is what what campbell didn't talk enough about and i never hear jordan talking about is that the hero myth was always counterbalanced with a hubris myth the hubris mm -hmm. myth was yes but if you try to become the gods you get this is a disaster and so right and this is this is what drew Heinen says plato was trying to get us to learn we need narratives that remind us of our capacity our heroic capacity for transcendence so we don't fall prey to servitude but we also need stories that you know re remind us of our tendency to hubris so we remember that we're never we will never be gods and we are always finite and and we need narratives that find the transcendence and the finitude together if you're just finite you fall into despair right and you'll 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 just fall into servitude and tyranny you'll just and if you're just transcendent, you'll fall. You'll fall into narcissism and megalomania, and, and uh, right. And of course, what we do is we have those two uncoupled in our society right now. On one hand, we're continually told you're nothing but a piece of shit, and on the other hand, we're told you are the the core of all of reality, and everything depends on you. So, I think let me try and summarize what I said. We we fragmented the hero myth. That was a mistake. Then what's left of the hero myth? has been fragmented from the hubris myth and then we lost the connection between them and now we have the fragmentation between our transcendence and our finitude which is also deeply deeply problematic because it sets us up for narcissism on one hand or despair on another and of course they just reinforce each other too so mm -hmm. that's my i don't have a particular concrete thing to say i'm trying to lay out what i think is an argument for what's missing in a structural 
manner. Now, you you guys probably know more about this better than I do, but you know, there's specific things that could fit into that analysis or or modify it. But that's at least a structure I've been reflecting on about trying to understand after having the discussion with Sean about how narrative is missing in our culture. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I like that. I guess for me, where I'm playing with this right now is where's the middle ground. Because I think sometimes the middle ground can bring two opposing views or two mm -hmm. narratives and realign it in a way that it becomes something of meaning in a person's life. So there is something to be said. And I think you, you kind of, you know, hinted to that. You said, well, we can't really go back, right? But there is definitely things to be learned from that time. Uh, of course. And for sure, for the most part, that's been thrown out. I mean, most people don't even look at that at all. And I think in that respect... I feel it would be worthwhile, for example, if we talk about indigenous ways of knowing and being. Yes. I think there is deep value in there, not only for the fact that that is how we live for most of our time on this planet. There is also the aspect of deeply connecting back into nature, which is no matter how much we try to move ourselves away from that, we are part of the earth. We are earth. This is where we come from. And to deny that is to deny our humanity. So I think that those are things that we can draw strength from. But we can also look at what we have achieved. And we can look at the science. And we can look at what research is saying. And in many ways, what I feel is kind of an earmark to this and something that relays back to that is oftentimes what science and what research is saying is actually giving credibility to those ancient <laughs> ways of knowing and being in a sense that it's kind yes. of, it's, it's highlighting what maybe before we would have maybe seen as more kind of like an ethnic primitive philosophy. In actual fact, science is saying, no, hold on a second. They were onto something. Yes. So really for me, that's the, the key is how do we find the balance in that story and then what? to articulate it in such a way that it would be um, taken on by the people, it would be available to them. Because even the way that we're talking, a lot of people will miss the mark completely. It's like beyond their, sure. you know, they sure. don't just have that kind of vocabulary to understand the, the nuances and the language and the words that we're using. And that's one thing I'm trying to get myself to come out of is not always write like an academic because yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah no, that, I, that makes sense so so on both points um i think the science does help us to learn and exact from the past um but it resists nostalgia in that it also opens up possibilities that were not developed or explored in the past yes um we're doing it right now Right. Like we're meeting and reflecting on this in a way that could be helpful to other people. And that's not available um, in, in the indigenous world. Um, and so I think science therefore points us towards the future, but it also helps prevent uh, utopia because science also, and this is, is anti hubristic and that it reminds us about our serious limitations, et cetera. Like, uh, yeah, that science is saying that you know the indigenous ways had a lot of wisdom in them but that science is saying yeah but the indigenous ways you know didn't understand hyperbolic discounting and the problem human beings have when they faced ex exponential growth because that wasn't a major factor in those environments but it's a major factor in our environment and we've got to properly educate people for it 
Um, so um, just just to say, I think it, it it helps. The problem I would say about science, this is part of my thesis, is while science can get us to sort of keep us from nostalgia and utopia, science doesn't tell, tell us how to dwell. It's it's not that kind of a discourse. Um, and so getting back the language of dwelling, um, I think is really important. And then I think, uh, Rodney, I think that speaks to your second point, right? And 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 I I'm I'm <laughs> I'm trying to really do this a lot in a lot of the work I'm doing. Um, the 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 idea about uh, I talk about stepping it down. You know how like a, an electric grid steps down the the power, stepping it down without dumbing it down. How do we do this? Well, and how do we give people the language of dwelling? And I did this. I tried, and I got some good feedback on it. Um, and one of my most recent talks at the Chino conference, when I talked about basically the cognitive science of home and try to give people like, what's really going on? What do we mean when we feel at home, when we dwell? What's that language? We can use the cog side to get there, but what does that do for us? And for me, um, that's how I see those two things connecting. I think science really helps uh, preserve us from nostalgia and utopia, uh, but we need something else that gives us the knowledge of how to dwell. And I think that's where Frank's point really comes to bear. I mean, language of the language of how to dwell is narrative. That's what I would propose to you. Um, and so learning how to translate this properly into narrative that is resonant with people in the 21st century, I think is a really important challenge. Um, so I'm trying to talk to lots of people like Sean and others who work in narrative, work in the arts, who, who, are, who are facing exactly this problem. Uh, I, I've been talking too much. I should let Frank say something here. I've been, I've been trying, I've been talking way too much. No, we, we love to listen. But uh, the, the other tension I'm seeing out there, and I'm sure you have an opinion about, is in the environmental community, a lot of people are pointing to the myth or philosophy of human supremacy as being the root of our problem. Uh, that that particular narrative is being ultimately destructive. And that at the other end is the narrative of biocentrism, where we're just part of the circle of life. And people are having a hard time navigating that tension because yeah. We're, we are raised as human supremacists, and now it looks like the only solution we have is to go in a biocentric direction, yeah. but people don't know how to do that. Yeah, and that's that's also for a historical, that's a good point. First of all, I agree with it, Frank. Um, you know, and so we get, we get, uh, we, we, we're, we're basically seeing, you know, and it started in post postmodernism. We're seeing the critique of humanism, you know, the, the, the human beings are the, the, the center of creation, the supreme creatures in the terrestrial realm. Uh, or, they're, or they're the earth parasite that has to be eradicated if we're going to save the planet. Uh, those are the two extremes, of course. Um, uh, and both, one, by the way, overemphasizes our transcendence, and the other overemphasizes our finitude, just to show you how that schema is showing up in what we're talking about here. Um, part of what happened his, historically, um, again, you, you both know I'm not advocating for Christianity. I'm talking historically. But Christianity had this intermediary notion of us. First of all, we weren't supreme. There were angels and God. 
And uh, we had dominance over the planet, but because there were things above us, we were we had the function of steward. We were stewards of the planet. We were not supposed to dominate it. Now, there's a mixed message in Genesis around this, and I'm not trying right. to get in. I, what I'm saying, there was a strand, though, uh, where people were, which basically told human beings um, that they, they and, and, I, and I want to really play up on the original etymology, they couldn't desecrate the earth. Right, that there was there was a, a goodness to the earth, um, and we we've lost that orientation because, as Peter Berger said, we've lost the sacred canopy. We've lost the sense of anything above us uh, against which we can be judged. Um, so we only have a sense of what's below us, um, which of course is also enmeshed with our reductive not our reductive materialism and everything like that. Here's the philosophical problem, Frank. I want to I want to ask you because. There's a real truth in the fact that persons, extended cognitive moral agents that belong to communities, let's just say there's more to a person, but let's say that's at least minimally necessary description, right? There's something to the fact that persons are inherently valuable and that they disclose aspects of reality that no other thing can do, right? You know, you can pile suns on top of suns and you don't get the same thing that a human mind does, etc. There's so I, I think there's that was the truth that was captured in humanism, but there's also the truth that that our intrinsic value isn't at the expense of the value of everything else. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember, I, and I remember wrestling with this, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away in an introductory course I took on environmental ethics because this was the central thing they were wrestling with. How do you how do you wrestle with you know if people are in this condition? Well. We either let our son die or the cat dies. Well, sorry, the cat dies, right? You know, and, and nobody would go, oh, right? But on the other hand, you know, we 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 are destroying vast number of species just because of a particular lifestyle. We don't want to give up, mm. right? And we we wrestled with that, and uh, I I was I mean I got a good mark on the course and everything, but I. I don't know, you know, I'm trying, I, I, you said I have an opinion, opinions are worthless. I don't, I, so I, I, I don't have any conclusions. I want to put, maybe, maybe we can put it into discussion a bit. I mean, do you first of all agree with that tension? I mean, there's, there's something about human beings that is like ontologically significant and therefore worthy of moral regard. Uh, so like I said, if we have to kill, uh, there's two entities and one of them have to die, we, we're going to pick something other than the human being. Right, and even the vegan acknowledges that because they'll kill the, you know, the the, the plant life, right? Um, and but on the other hand, the 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 sense that we have also this is the Heidegger thing we've turned all of the other living beings into mere resources that are there just for our use, and and part of it is the the deep continuity hypothesis, right? That the values we see in human beings are prefigured in other beings on a sliding scale all the way, all the way down to the paramecium. The paramecium has agency and therefore, you know, if it comes to killing a paramecium um, and, and you don't have to, you shouldn't and even things like that. So first of all, does that, I mean, that was a lot, I'm sorry, but Frank, you, does, I, I'm trying to get at the, the, the tension expressed in terms of competing values. And I want to know if that lands for you as a formulation of the problem. 
it's not an answer by any means. Right. No, that, that all makes good sense. And I, I think a lot of people are struggling with this very issue right now. What I find really interesting in, in current events is the rights of nature movement. And what we're seeing in governments around the world, we're starting to see this is actually being written into constitutional law, that certain rivers, certain ecosystems have rights that are essentially equivalent to human rights. And mm -hmm. that's the monkey wrench in this whole thing. Because when we take that step, then that could change everything. Hmm. I think also just, just to add to that and just from my perspective is that, and definitely for some of the guests that we've already spoken to in the last several episodes, some of them being indigenous elders. And now I'm not saying that it's that everybody gets it right and I don't want to over romanticize it, but it's very clear to me that the value system that their ancestors had is a very different value system that we have yes. now. And so the way that they saw their place within nature wasn't as separate, but part of, I mean, even to the point of thinking about, you know, animals having spirit, they could be the spirit of their ancestors, um, giving honor to the animal that you had to kill in order to survive and to live. All of these ideas speak to a very different way of seeing yourself within symbiosis a community with the natural world mm -hmm. and i guess there 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 is a time and different people have said different things the anthropocene and so forth where that started to shift right think about industrial revolution all of the changes that happened and so the the shifting kind of sands was where it started shifting into materialism that being the focus, changing our values and seeing ourselves differently and also removing us from our natural state, taking us out of the wild and into an unnatural state, into a city, which, you know, we know from evolutionary psychology when they talk about the mismatch hypothesis, right? Yes, Is that sure. we, have, we kind of have this, this ancient kind of mechanisms and systems within us, but we've thrust it into a world that it wasn't designed for. And then are we then surprised that when we look around, people are unhappy and miserable and have lost meaning. So I think, you know, speaking to what Frank said is that there does seem, even though it's very slight, a slight turnaround back to that value system. And maybe once we understand that we are not separate, but connected and that we are part of this planet and that actually maybe even seeing that as, as important as we believe ourselves to be, if everything else died on this planet tomorrow, we stop existing. Mm -hmm. And that's something to maybe just, just consider. I'm not sure if that adds anything to the discussion, but that's kind of just where my thinking went. Well, well I think it does. I, I guess I'd want to ask you a question then. Um, and this goes towards the, that sort of um, reflective stance towards indigenous wisdom. Um, so value systems don't just hang free as ideas in people's heads. I would argue they're way they're forms of religio. They're ways in which people are bound to a particular environment within niche construction and all that sort of thing. And uh, and for example, I think the uh, one of the things that happened when we moved from the Paleolithic uh, and I'm uh, sorry from the Neolithic into the agrarian was this taking up of the ser of the servitude and steward model as a way of trying to keep something of mm that earlier part of model but transpose it into civilization um now 
that, that, and that goes towards my question. I, for one, don't want to give up civilization. I've seen the road. I don't want to ever see the movie again. Uh, civilization is a like a, like um, uh, here, here's why. If you if if you if you say, well, we'll get rid of civilization, then that goes towards Frank's point, and I think now we're going mm. towards human beings as the earth past and what will because if you get rid of civilization and all the machinery around it we can't sustain the population we have I mean, that's just not possible um and not only the quantity the quality of civilization i mean uh um we can be doing this very rarefied thing because we have a very complex uh society in which we're living right uh we have a lot of specialization you can't have that in a hunter-gatherer society um so what I'm saying is, I agree with you, um, but I think it's problematic to think we can adopt that value system uh, within a post-industrial, scientifically technological, civilizational structure. Now, so the question would be, is there a way, given that we did modify it once before, we took that and we took it up in the agrarian civilizations, the Bible as the steward idea, right? Um, is there a way, do you think, that we could adapt and exact that uh, ethos that you've already articulated, but so that it would land and really call to people. And I don't mean romantically call to people because we all agree that we're, we're, oh, I just want to feel a certain way. That's not what we're talking about here. Hmm. Right, so do you see the question I'm asking you, Rodney? It's I do, I do, but I think the answer is something that is going to be extremely difficult to achieve. Because hmm. if I look on the face of it, what is the fundamental problem that I see? And I see it as greed. Yes. So sort of Malachian forces at work. Right. Uh, and what so, I was talking about earlier, yeah. that, that, that exploitative thing. Yes. Yeah. So we all have to come to a place where we understand what is actually enough. And this is the problem that we're in, is that we're in this kind of machine of consumerism for consumeristic mm -hmm sake i mean that's really what it comes down to i mean if you ask most people why do you need to buy that i mean fundamentally do you really really need that is it going to change your life in a fundamental way most of the stuff isn't i mean there is a movement right the minimalist movement the minimalist movement yes. which is the realization of that i mean what does it say about our society where we have these people and not many of them that have such extreme wealth. What for? I, like for me, it's so confusing. Like I, I, I mean, I get it. I mean, I don't. I clearly don't think it's healthy. I think it's psychopathic. I mean, what would you want to get up every morning in your seventies to go and make more money when you've already have so much that you could never spend that in in ten thousand lifetimes? But we seem to all, even on the lowest level, seem to be aspiring to that. Because even the poorest among us will go and waste enormous amount of resources that they say that is really difficult to achieve to buy, you know, brands just to basically, you know, I don't know, maybe this to, to show their fitness signals, right, to other, to, to other groups. Because when you don't have nothing or you feel you have nothing, those, you know, those uh, Jordan, those Nike Jordans make you look like you have something, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. And so I think the answer is, is that how do we, how do we change this narrative of greed? Because once we change that, I think things really, really change. I mean, I try to do that in my life all the time. And I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm, no, I no. agree with you. I, I wouldn't want to go back per se. 
Um, but I would like to live in a world that espouses the values of that time because I think it's more holistic and it's more sustainable for the future of this planet and everybody on it. But you're right, we have too many people. But at the same time, I mean, just simple things. I mean, I just was watching a documentary yesterday about the amount of food that gets thrown out on a daily basis because it supposedly passes an expiration date. But that food could still be used. Why is it being thrown out? What is, what is driving that behind? Well, it's this consumeristic machine. And it just seems that everybody is out for themselves, right? I mean, even in that sense, we were talking about creating a story. Well, how do we tell a new story when everyone is being conditioned to be focused on the cult of self? That was a very good response. Can I respond to it? Uh, <laughs> absolutely. I, I, I guess I'm asking Frank's permission if I could speak right now. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. So, um, so I agree. Um, so two two things I'd want to say, which is, um, greed is insidious um, because we've attached status to wealth. Yeah. That's largely what and. and you're, and I'm going to say something that sounds bold, but I think there's just too much science attached to it. You're not going to get human beings to ever stop competing for status. That's not going to happen. So if you're, and this is what I, because why we're, we're, I, that's primate behavior. That's right. That's, that's right. This is why I, re, uh, I reject most utopias. You know, the classless society for Marx is an example. Nope. We saw what happened. Yeah. They don't compete for wealth. They can meet, compete for position, bureaucratic power within the Politburo and the party. So, right. So I agree. And that's one of the parts I have many where I don't, but that's one of the parts where I agree with Jordan, Jordan Peterson's work. Um, the, you know, we're, we're not going to stop competing for status. So for example, this can be very insidious. It's like, well, you're going out. Well, you, you can't wear that when you're going out, we're going to this place and you have to wear those clothes for that place. Because if you don't, people will automatically think you are making this statement and there's all of this, you know, semiotics. And so what, what that means, right. Is a very comprehensive reformulation of how we assign status to people. And if we know other societies have other ways of assigning status. And I think that requires a comprehensive thing. Secondly, it requires all of us in concert to take a hit to our standard of living. I I think any that's uh, some of the utopias also like oh well we'll just well we'll just have electric cars and solar power and everything will be wonderful. It's like no, it won't. Right? Uh, yeah, like <laughs> like uh, we all have to take a, a hit to our standard of living, and this is part of my work because. As far as I can tell, the only thing that will get people to modify how they assign status and take a hit to their subjective well-being is offering them more meaning in life. Mm -hmm. That is the only thing for which there's good evidence. And mm -hmm. so this is why the meaning crisis is such an exacerbator of the very problems we're talking about here. So I've never claimed that it's the only crisis. People have said that about me. I'm just going to say that's false. I don't claim that. I claim that it has this particular status, that it is what hamstrings us from addressing the meta crisis because of those two claims that I've just made. 
people will modify. Look, what happens in a monastery is that there's still status, but it gets really modified because people are being offered meaning in life, right? And, and subjective well-being goes down when people have children. Why? Because meaning in life goes up, right? We have the, I think, the, the, the clear evidence, clear argument and evidence that the things that will get people to modify greed and there's two parts of this the status right and and, and and you know subjective well-being the meaning in life and that's why for me trying to address the meaning crisis is paramount yeah i was just so thinking, it sounds, yeah, go for it. oh it, it sounds then that you, it would be correct to say that meaning is medicine for people and it can override some of the other uh, deficits that we might be experiencing. Um, yeah, it's both medicine and food for people. Yeah, it, yeah. It can, it can heal them, and it can also empower them uh, to grow in different different ways that they need to. Um, right. But that would require, though, that what you know you were describing is the what's considered important in that meaning. That would have to be renegotiated. Because clearly, well, what we are struggling with right now, as you noted, is a crisis in meaning. Yes. And I feel that that crisis also in some way is because what we are placing meaning on is not the kinds of things that ah. create yes. the meaning we're talking about, enduring fulfillment. It's like one oh, of the oh. things, yeah, sorry, just, just on that. Yeah, yeah, finish, finish one, of the, one of the things I, I don't like is when people talk about happiness. To me, happiness is fleeting. <laughs> You do something, you feel happy, and then you're back to square one the next moment, right? I yeah. I think the think of it more in terms of fulfillment. To me, if you're going to engage in things that are meaningful, they have to give you fulfillment for the long run. So really, sure. we you know that's really where I'm at on that. Yeah, you're. I mean, and this is a compliment. You are Aristotle. You fulfilling flourishment, eudaimonia. You, it's fulfilling, eudaimonia. right? Yeah. And, and, and it, it affords flourishing of yourself and others. Right. Yes. And I, I agree. Uh, and what we would uh, what I would say is um, I don't think meaning is actually put on things. We could put salience and interest on things. I think meaning is co-created by how mm -hmm. well it fits us to the environment. I think we mistake salience and the intensity of salience for the long term legitimacy defined in terms of fulfilling flourishment of meaning. And I think that's one of the deep and profound confusions of our culture. And you can even see it like in how music is degrading, like in terms of we're losing the melodic structure, we're losing a, because we're going more and more for the beat because the beat is the intense salient part of music, right? And just as one example, uh, uh, musicologists have noticed that trend. So I think, um, and, 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 and happiness is, has lost the eudaimonic thing and it's just become that, like you said, that fleeting feeling of contentedness, um, which I, I agree. I think that's a, that's a fundamental mistake. But here, here's what I want want to say. If, I mean, Aristotle, and you know, and then behind him is Plato, and behind him is Socrates. So the three are always together in my mind, right? Getting people to transform their value system. Um, I don't even like that that word. That's that's so enlightenment way of talking about it, like the enlightenment, right? But getting them to uh, to uh, transform towards a eudemistic framework, that's a comprehensive uh, transformation. This is why I've been, and this what this proposal, 
touches on what we've been talking about. It talks about, it touches on narrative, right? And a lot of this stuff, neither utopic nor um, nostalgic, neither pure transcendence nor pure finitude. And again, I'm not advocating anything. I'm pointing the things that did this in the past were religion. That's what religion did. And we have rightly criticized religions for their epistemic, right, scientific criticisms and their moral failings. We, of course, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying go back. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, but we have to figure out something that has that analogous functionality for us uh, if we're mm -hmm. going to do the kind of thing. And, 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 and I would put it to you that what's happening in America right now, and I'm allowed to comment on America because I'm a Canadian and that's what that's why we evolved as a species. Uh, our main ecological role is to com comment on America. We have no intrinsic value. <laughs> uh, so, um, but anyways, um, I think America is in the middle of a religious civil war precisely because this vacuum. This vacuum was held away by the that by the civil religion and other people call it that of Americanism, but Americanism has largely collapsed under polarization. So there is now nothing holding that. And, and, and within the polarization, we've got, we've got the woke religion. And then we have something like the Trump cult uh, and conspirituality. And we, like we have these two, and I'm, I'm critical, deeply critical of both of these, because um, I think, if you look at them sociologically, anthropologically, social psychology, psychologically, they have many of the features. They're trying to be religions. Um, mm -hmm. Like if you like just watch a QAnon documentary, it's like a church service. It's so creepy and weird. They sing and then they have like a sermon and then they have some tea and coffee together and they offer, you know, child some care for each other. Like it's like, whoa, that's really right. Or, you know, and many people have commented on this. The woke movement has so many religious, you know, aspects to it. We we now do essentially what our prayers. We have to do these acknowledgments. Who are we talking to when we do these? Right? We right. do these acknowledgments. We 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 suffer perpetual guilt, not for anything we've done, but simply for who and what we are. And we're constantly seeking forgiveness. And where do we look? Well, we look for whatever group has now been deemed the holy or sacred group. And, and we like, how did they get that? Right. Anyways, I won't go on about this again. I think both I think the right and the left both have something important to say. The right calls us to virtue and the left reminds us that we are subject to fate and we need we need compassion and we need support because we're subject to fate. But the right says, yeah, but you have to also cultivate virtue and take on responsibility. I think there should be a point of processing. What I'm saying is. I think what's gripping America after the fragmentation, the loss of Americanism as a civil religion is a religious civil war precisely because the sought after functionality that we are talking about is ultimately a religious functionality in a deep sense. Sorry, that was a long argument, but I wanted to I wanted to really try. It, it, I'm trying to say that that's what we need to do. But look at how disastrously bad it is going in many places. The United States is an example. That that vacuum will not remain unfilled. So that yeah, that's my question. Then, John, do you have any kind of thoughts on that? You you kind of pointed to these two opposing views, yeah. and you were saying oh, there's there's actually positive in both of them. Do you think yes. eventually it's going to kind of get to a tip of the spear 
where it kind of coalesces and balance itself out? Um, or do you think there's going to be enormous amount of strife and rebellion and maybe not so? Because I just, the only reason I'm saying that is because last night I had a very interesting conversation. I'm not going to mention the gentleman's name. Very well-known person in the risk threat management space. And he's feeling, and he's not American, and his feeling was we are on the precipice of a decline. Like things are going to just get a whole lot more bad from this moment forward. And if we just look to America, that's kind of what I'm seeing, right? And just on small little things, like, I mean, it might not seem related, but I think it is. Like I just recently spent three weeks with young adults uh, who work for a specific uh, company. They travel all over the world. Part of what happens is they have to go out of station. They have to be in different parts of the world. And just the stories that they were telling me about feeling unsafe and the parts of the world that they were in where you wouldn't have imagined previously that that would be places that people felt unsafe, but that's what they're saying. And I've seen a yeah. dramatic rise in that over the last short while. So, yeah. Um, so I'm going to have to give a sort of bimodal answer. One is, uh, um, I see signs of real hope, uh, signs that should give real hope. So I've been talking about um, the rest, the, the, the reinventio of democracy. Uh, instead of understanding democracy as adversarial processing, trying to understand it as opponent processing for the collective intelligence of our distributed cognition and to treat it as something that is transhuman, not in the transhumanist sense, but beyond human beings, but nevertheless, we are directly participating in that opponent processing. And if that could get coupled to replacing first past the post, the evidence that first past the post rewards polarization and populism I think is now, I think it's near consensus level, right? So first past the post is a dangerous engine because it it it, it rewards, it incentivizes those two things, which fragment the opponent processing into adversarial processing. If we could institute, like get rid of first past the post, and there's various proposals uh, about how you could do that. Um, and then if we could get a culture of dialogos going, such that we could get that the best way for you and I to both correct each other is if you and I have opposing biases, but I get that your bias helps me transcend mine and you get that your bias helps you transcend yours. And we both are committed to that above and beyond our particular positions, which has been the case, by the way, hmm. in the past. Um, and so the fact that, you know, and I'm doing a lot, we, we've just started the Verveki Foundation, not just me, but the whole foundation, right? Sorry, I, I apologize for that sentence. I am participating in something that is doing a lot. That's the sentence I should have said. My Eurocentrism got in the way. Um, you know, we, we've just, we've, we were basically starting the, you know, Awaken to Meaning portal where we have, it's basically a developmental dojo, Right. There's basic core practices, there's courses, there's introductory courses, there's long work, uh, short and long-term workshops. There's a whole thing being built up. And then we also plug into the Respond Network and point people to various leaders. You might want to consider joining this. Sure. It, it is, right, it's, it's right where we, where, that, you know, leaders of, of emerging communities of practice. And the whole thing there is, can we create, 
Can we steal the culture? Can we do what early Christianity did? Like in this book, right? The Rise of Christianity by a sociologist. What, can we do what they did and, you know, steal the culture, bottom up, create a dialogical culture? And then democracy, this reformed democracy, this reformulated democracy and restructured democracy, can we put that on top? I think that's possible. Now, I don't think it's possible in the United States because the Constitution is um, ossified. They they have lost the ability to transform their Constitution, which means the country is politically doomed. I mean, sorry, I, I don't mean to just be like, but they are in a place where they can never get a, the kind of consensus that is needed for changing the Constitution. And because mm-hmm. they can't change the Constitution, the Constitution is progressively becoming out of date in very, very important ways. I, I just want to give some substance to that claim. Mm-hmm. Take a look at um, uh, Adams, I think it was. Was it Adams? Uh, John Adams? Maybe. One of the early American founding fathers said that democracy depended on the size of the country because the size of the country meant information uh, traveled slow enough that it it was a clamp on the mob, on a mob mentality. And the Constitution was written in that context, depending on the, the geographical size and the slow speed of travel and communication. Those are gone. Those constraints are gone. The Constitution, right, no longer fits. I'm just giving one example of many. So I don't think these changes can come to the United States. I think the United States is actually, and I mean this very technically, constitutionally doomed. But I do think there, like, there's a good chance that these some of these electoral reforms will come out in the Czech Republic, in parts of Europe, that will get exemplary cases of how this can possibly uh, be changed, that give us other models that we could consider. So... I think there's there'll be islands of hope, but I think unless, you know, I mean, you, you know, one of the things you should never do is count the United States down. Their ability to redesign themselves um, is like phenomenal. And so let's say I, I'm going to hold out that that's a possibility for them because they've demonstrated it time and time again. But unless that happens, I think they're doomed because they they are just they're locked now in, in something that they can't unlock themselves. From. It doesn't matter which who's president. The system is so gridlocked and so inflexible. Nothing much can get done. And, and if they manage to get one or two things done, the next president comes along and just just removes it, right? They can't they can't get any ratcheting effect going. Mm. So some hope, but not so much for the United States. So coming back to that project that you just mentioned that you you deploying, what is the web address for that? Do you guys have a, a URL for that? Uh, yes, and I don't have it memorized and I don't have it on hand, but well, just pop it over to us so we can put it in. Um, I guess like one of the things, as you were saying that, and I love the idea, I guess just from my perspective, and this is something that I'm learning of late and I have already mentioned it is one of the ways to make that movement possible is really to whatever that information is to make it highly accessible and allow it to be able to be you know consumed by anyone without Mm -hmm. the kind of language that often is layered over these things that makes it pretty much inaccessible for the average person i mean any of us that and we all have studied in academia know when we go to those research journals right and we're reading those articles we're going what the fuck are these people talking about right and you have to sit there for hours trying to uncover what's really going on 
I think the the, the key is going to be to kind of create this thing that, that you've been talking about is to really put it in such a way that anybody reading it gets it. And I think that's an important thing to maybe be, be considered. And specifically addressing that, I, I did a video essay on a while back on what's happening with the what looks like the beginning, the advent of AGI. And I talked about the scientific, the philosophical and the spiritual things. I talked about thresholds. I think people who are making predictions are foolish. Uh, we don't have the data to make those the, to make predictions. But I think we can talk about threshold points, mm. choice points where this this will become more and more like us and capable of superseding us. But to your point, I thought I had stepped it down, but uh, Sean Coyne, who's story great, he came to me and said, that video you did was like amazing, but we've got to step it down and make it accessible to people at large because the commons, as opposed to the market or the state, has to be the place where the response to AGI comes from. And I agreed with him. And so basically... He took, he's taking, like I'm working with him and he has rewritten it with all of that narrative expertise and, 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 and how he does this is just like, wow, uh, I'm just so, and, and made it accessible. And we're t- releasing it as a book coming out August 1st, nice. Me- nice. mentoring, mentoring the machines. And then we're going to reset, re- and we're even releasing it in serial fashion so that people can take it step by step and we can be responsive to changes as it comes out directly trying to address exactly the point you made on what I would argue, and I think many people would too, is a pivot point for us. We're facing something really pivotal. Like I think Bronze Age collapse pivotal with the advent of AGI. Mm. Um, so I, what I'm saying, I'm, I'm trying to give an example that I totally agree and I take it seriously. I take it to heart and I'm trying to do exactly what you're talking. When it's that issue, some some issues are scientific sure. and academic, and you have to work that way, mm-hmm. right? And then some is you're trying to bridge between them. I I find that I'm there's three discourses that I'm trying to get involved. One is the, just stay involved with the science, right? The other is this weird intermediary discourse, and this is kind of like that. Mm. And then the third is this, you know, the the talking to talking to and on behalf of the commons. Okay. Um, so what I've started doing just to to that and from my end, and I'll see how it goes. I th- I've really got some good feedback. So I tend to write articles. Obviously, the way that I write it is, is based on my own perceptions. And I think it makes a whole lot of sense, and it does. But when somebody else reads it, it's it's yeah, yeah. it's just it's just not 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 clicking, right? And it comes back to that common. So I've started writing two versions. Right, a kind of a more simplified, um, you know, what's the main points here? I don't need to spend 20 minutes of my life reading this thing. What's the gist? And then I put underneath, if you want to read the, uh, you know, the complete version, the unfiltered yes. version, click here. And then that goes to the unfiltered version. And then whoever wants to do that can. But if you didn't, you still got the main thrust of what I was trying to bring across. That's just we, we did exactly the same thing. We have the book and we say, if you want to do the more d- deep thing, here's the cl- here's the link to the video essay nice. and the responsive nice. videos that you know various people made. Yeah, I, like I, I think we're adopting exactly the same strategy. So I think that's convergent. Fantastic. Frank, let's uh, kind of start winding down because we're almost at the hour mark here for John. Uh, you have a, any last question that you want to ask? Right. Well, I do. And it gets back to this idea of meaning and where people find it. And I just wanted to say that I'm finding that for me personally in the world of activism, for Mm. me, 
getting involved in climate activism, biodiversity, and all the various ecological issues, the more I get involved in activism, the more meaning I'm able to derive from that experience and get a sense of belonging. And it's it's really promising and really exciting, even when we don't win. So I, I'm part of this group that sometimes we fail, sometimes we succeed, but still the the net effect at the end is to increase the meaning in my life. And that's what's really exciting. Yeah, I, I mean, being connected to something that's larger than yourself that you would want to exist, even if you don't exist and making a difference to it, that's what generates meaning in life. Um, so I think I think many people are are seeing activism um, as a place to do that. The problem we face is, of course, um, that activism does get captured on the left and the right um, in various ways. Um, and well, I mean, I, I think I've got a sense of you, Frank. I'm, I'm not worried about that happening to you or anything like that. But what <laughs> what I mean is, it would be nice if activism. If there was an activism on behalf of and for the comment, uh, mm -hmm. rather than being tied uh, to one of these two polarizing uh, uh, poles, um, and I, I guess that's that would be something I would just put out for you to to consider. Yeah, I like that. That's really good. Any last parting words, John? I mean, other than that, I think it's been fantastic. It was really great to talk no, to you again. This is this is great. I like. You know, let's do this again, and please, the three of us. You know, uh, it's it's great. I like this. The, mm. This this mix is really good. Um, I find it very. You know, it, it sparks and it shifts and it flows, and so I, I really liked it a lot. So nice. thank you. And, and we we didn't even get to talk about martial arts, which yes. we, we circle back to that at some later date. Of course, that yeah, would, yeah. It'd be, it'd be yes. cool to do an episode just on martial arts. I'd love to do that. That'd be cool. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that, you know, that I've been doing is, you know, uh, because of my recent diagnosis, I've, uh, you know, I've taken up, uh, I've always wanted to take up one more uh, martial art, but I've taken up Jeet Kune Do. Uh, oh, nice. My, cool. my, my partner's brother, he's learning it, and he's graciously helping me, teaching me, and I'm really loving it. Uh, so, uh, well, hopefully, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, hopefully one day when we actually connect physically in person. Um, I'd love to I'd love to give you a lesson and give you kind of my insights on how I approach things. So that would be really cool. I would like that as long as we don't put your neck at risk. In any no, way. no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> OK. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks. Thanks, John. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It. Yeah. Me too. Good, Thank you, day. Frank. Really great yes. having you. Great to meet you. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Nice. That was great, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My brain was on fire. Was yeah, mine good. too, man. It's like, yeah. wow, it's just really cool. But I think, I think you know, coming out of that, a couple of points for me, because I always like to talk a little bit afterwards, right? Because I add that into the podcast, right? So uh, a few points for me for based on that is takeaways, like a lot of things, but definitely the idea of trying to make the stuff that I do and my work more available to the commons, Mm -hmm. that's the one thing i'm I'm gonna really try and work on good yeah yeah and it doesn't mean dumbing it down no it no means, of course not no it means being a better communicator i i think it's uh yeah because i have a bad habit of just kind of going full-on academic right because that's what i did for <laughs> so long 
Um, right, right. Which is kind of weird, really, when I think about it, the, the, the irony of it. You know, the guy that never finished high school and and uh, didn't really enjoy writing at all, you know, at, at any time at school. And now I am writing and, I, and I'm enjoying it. But then I end up writing so academic that I think I, I'm losing people, not because of anything else. It's just, yeah, I mean, why you you know, you, if you want to read something like that, you'd go to a journal, right? So I need to, I need to just kind of like reorient and, like you said, become a better communicator, which is hard. well. There's a there's a great book. I don't know if you've uh, seen this one. It's called Educated, mm -mm. and this woman who she grew up. Um, in rural Idaho, in a deeply conservative, like Mormon evangelical family that didn't believe in school, didn't believe in reading or books or anything. And somehow she she realized that there was this bigger outside world. She taught herself basic academic subjects, like through sixth grade, seventh grade, that kind of thing. And she eventually got into college and she eventually got her PhD at Oxford. Wow. Which it's just an amazing story. So uh, I'll check it out. Yeah. It sounds interesting. Yeah. yeah. She's, she's kind of famous. So you'll find cool. her. Nice. Hi, Dr. King. Yeah. And thank you for taking the time out of your busy life to listen to myself and Frank, as we explore with our guests, ways to return the human animal to wild health. For more information on Frank, you can go to his website at exuberantanimal.com or drrodneyking.com to find out more about my coaching programs, read my blog, get your hands on some gear, or explore upcoming events. Until the next time, stay wild and free.